Ian Mendes from TSN 1200. You're listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. Alright, good to go. Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's going good, and we're casting off a new computer. Well, new-ish. That is true. Now, you and I were talking a little bit about this before we hit record today. Now, do you want to explain to the listeners what exactly we were talking about? So, basically... uh the old machine that I was running on, I've had it since I was an undergrad, so that's about seven years ago. Jesus Christ, but uh, <laughs> dating myself a bit. But uh, so one of the things about computers is uh, one of the first things to go is the power supply unit. And it was kind of getting into that rage, so I didn't want it. I felt like I was starting to play with fire a bit. So uh, we have a computer that's a bit newer that is a hand-me-down from Chelsea. It still has parts that are very powerful even compared to more modern pieces that had sheet and this thing was put together around 2015 yeah so it's uh got more jump to it uh instead of running on a, a standard hard disk it it actually has an ssd which is nice and uh yeah so it's a major upgrade from what i had it's it's, it's always a bit sad to pack away an old computer though it is because you know you grow attached to it with everything that you do on those computers because I know for myself because I'm a Mac user like whenever I've gotten rid of a MacBook or whatever there's always that weird I don't want it's it's a weird attachment to it because you've used it so much and you kind of know the the ins and outs of the computer and then when you get a new one you have to sort of relearn a lot of the stuff that you get for your new one yeah and it's like a lot of it's resetting it up too and one of the nice things is the settings come across pretty easily nowadays. So it's like, it looks like the old computer, and I'm using I'm using the same monitors, so that helps. But yeah, it's just going to be getting a bit used to it. But the nice thing is, is it's it's not, okay, time to write, wait for the disk to write, and all that stuff. It's bang right to it. Solid. Now, are you going to be using this computer for the brand new Windows Flight Simulator that's going to be coming out very soon? No, maybe. No, this is funny, because you and I were talking about this before we hit record. You remember back in the day, probably 15, 20 years ago, when Radio Shack had their computer set up with the flight simulator and the joystick? Every store, every Radio Shack I was ever into when I was a kid had that. They had that computer with the Windows, or was it Windows or Microsoft Flight Simulator? Uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. That's what it was. Yeah, so they had that, and... I used to just dick around on it. I always thought it was fun. And it's funny, I, was, I mentioned this to you. I said, I never even realized that was a real game. I just thought it was a demo disc that only like places like Radio Shack had. But apparently, from what you were telling me, this is not the, th- this is not the case. Yeah, people get hardcore into uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. And even I think the latest one was Flight Simulator X, if I... And it's even that's quite an old game nowadays. So people will make like custom planes, uh, they'll map airports and come up with games within a game sort of thing. 
So uh, it's actually really impressive what folks are able to do with it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like what a lot of the modders will do for... And one of the big mods I know for us being hockey fans is that a lot of people have modded the PC version of NHL 2004 with the updated graphic, or not so much updated graphics, but updated rosters, updated teams, everything like that. Because as you and I have done an episode a few years ago about, the PC NHL games were always far superior than the console versions. And for obvious reasons, PCs were a lot more powerful than, say, the Playstations or Xboxes of the world. But for whatever reason, EA has stopped doing the PC NHL games, and it's really disappointing, and a lot of people online have figured, okay, well, EA's not going to do this, so we're going to go out and do this for ourselves with 2004. Yeah, and I guess the thing is, is as consoles matured a bit, people definitely moved from cons- from PC to console because, well, installing games used to be a pain in the ass because you'd have to, you get your fancy new game, go to your computer, then you have to wait for it to install, and What's kind of funny is uh, modern consoles, except for the Nintendo Switch, have been like, you know what's a good idea? Making you install and update your friggin' game. So, like, that advantage that the consoles used to have, just being able to plug and play, that's gone. Yeah, and that was always the big piss-off when it came to the PC versions of those games, is that, yes, they did have to install, but the nice thing was is that the installation, honestly, looking back on it, was really not that long compared to the games that we have today. It would depend on the game. Like, I remember uh, installing Age of Empires 3. That was a three-disc installation. Oh, yeah, that's true. I guess for big games like that, or uh, what was the other one that I remember my buddy had? Not uh, World of Warcraft. I think it was StarCraft. Yeah. Yeah, StarCraft was a bit of a pain in the ass, but, you know, it it was a fun game. Yeah, but then again, uh, it's not like console games were immune to that either with Final Fantasy IV on four freaking CDs. I thought uh, Final Fantasy... I, I thought it was Final Sorry, Fa- Final Fantasy Seven. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was Seven and seven. didn't Eight also come on three discs? Yeah, because I think Nine might have as well because uh, one of the big thing, the big, big thing about the PS2 that was awesome was it went from CDs to DVDs. Which meant you could hold a lot more shit. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. There was a, there was a PlayStation game I had one time, and I th- think it was like a two disc. It was was a Siphon Filter. I think Siphon Filter was like yeah. two, one of the games was two discs, but but no, I do understand. When, it's funny what we were talking about then, because I was like, ah, oh, I totally forgot what a pain in the ass installation was for those kind of games. Actually, it's one of the re- and this is gonna be a fucking wild tangent here. It's one of the reasons why I could never really understand how people could get into into porn games. Because it's like, holy fuck, you have to install that thing. Like, are you even gonna be? Are you even gonna care after the installation? I don't think so. No. <laughs> Apparently, Chelsea's getting fired up about that too, Tim. <laughs> so, Tim, I think we've had enough good talk about PlayStation and PC games, and. Well, I don't have a real segue into this, so we're going to go right into the episode because today's episode is Season 3, Episode 21 in chronological order, Episode 75, The Sends on TSN Personalities episode. And our cover athlete for today's episode is our friend of the show, Bottom of the Pot, and former interview guest, Jamie McLennan. So a little backstory about Jamie McLennan. He was drafted 48th overall by the New York Islanders in 1991. He went on to have a 12-year NHL career recording in 80, 109, and 33 record with six NHL teams, the New York Islanders, 
St. Louis Blues, Minnesota Wild, New York Rangers, Florida Panthers, and two stints with the Calgary Flames before he joined the Flames front office in 2008 before moving on to TSN to become a full-time NHL analyst, color commentator, and radio show host with Overdrive. So, Tim, I know we can talk about Jamie's career as an analyst and his playing career, but given that, like I said, like he was a former interview guest on the show, that's I think we should probably talk about that because overall, like, and I think the one thing I, we've been very lucky about when we've gotten guys like Jamie or Ian Mendez or Alex Marchand is that they've always been super cool with us before we hit record. Now, do you remember or uh, what was your thoughts on Jamie McClendon and his interactions with us before we hit record? Oh, it was fun. Uh, although I still think my favorite memory is like, oh, we got some more time. We got to have some more questions. I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I know. And that threw me for a loop because I had nothing. I was like, uh, uh, oh, shit. I got nothing. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it was one of those things <laughs> where uh, I I remember, uh, well, from the Ian Mendes interview when we were asking about what he mentioned, he thought Danny Heatley might come back to the fold. And that was just kind of an interesting question to flip back. That was an interesting thing. And I think because we were talking about Alexei Yashin and Ray Emery and he was bringing up if those players would have a do-over, he said he did. And he felt the same way about Danny Heatley, especially with how his departure happened with mm-hmm. the Raiders. Yeah, and, well, between that, and we also had a ton of ton of great stories out of uh, Jamie McLennan, so glad that our listeners enjoy it, and uh, I love talking with the guy, but as you can see, we could spend hours doing it, so uh, if you haven't already, go check out the interview we did with Jamie back in August. No, it was September, uh, late September. September. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, and uh, go- going back to what we were talking about Jamie McLennan, is that we did get a lot of stories out of him, however, like you said, we could have gone out and talked for two hours with him just about certain stops in the NHL, certain players, and I got a chance to read his book, and if we ever get him back on the podcast, there is one of two stories I want him to tell, and I won't spoil the stories, but one of them involves a cab ride in Montreal, and another involves a rookie party when he played for St. Louis. The rookie party is probably going to be an amazing story. Let me tell you, if you have not read his book, The Best Seat in the House, that is the one story I always come back to because I read it and I just start laughing because it reminds me a lot of the stories. I know, a third straight episode we're talking about speed checklist, but when they have the players on, they tell the stories about the behind the scenes or the locker room. That That's what it reminds me of. It reminds me a lot of those kind of stories. But the one story he actually hinted at was the helicopter ride in Chad Kruger I actually thought that one was very, very funny. And if that was actually one of my, another one of my favorite stories from the book. I, I could go on and on about the book because there's so many funny stories. But like I said, if we ever get Jamie back on the podcast, we would have, we'll have to get him to tell one of those stories. For sure. So Tim, let's talk about next week's cover athlete because next week's episode is season three, episode 22 in chronological order, episode 76. Now we only got... One person on the board. Now, given that we have had a player in the past that wore number 76, we've decided we are not going to use that player. But instead, we are going to use the Sens blog 
and the Sense Twitter account that it inspired. And that, of course, is Bonk's Mullet. Does that count as cheating? It doesn't, because we've already used Radic Bonk as a cover athlete. Episode 14. I guess. Yeah. Now, just a little uh, heads up for next week's episode, and we were talking about great stories with Jamie McLennan. I actually have a really funny story, and it's, it's actually a really funny story, talking about Bonk's Mullet and an encounter I had in Vancouver. However, I'm going to sh- save that for next week's episode when we have him as our cover athlete. Crazy. Yeah. So, Tim, let's go to talk about last week's episode, our trade deadline episode, because I'm really happy how that episode turned out, but also I'm happy that we got a lot of listens out of that episode. Yeah, and that was a long episode too, hey? Well, I often wonder how much of it was it an actual long episode or the fact that we started later than we did? No, like, <coughs> well, I guess it was, only, like, the episode 12 was longer, but we were recording for over two hours, dude. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair stuff. I wouldn't go necessarily that far, but yeah, we were recording for quite a bit of time. But one thing I know that, looking back on that episode, is that we really had no frame of reference for a lot of the trades because we were just looking at it going like, I haven't followed this team. I haven't followed this player. I don't know who this player is. So well, that, and that's why half, yeah, like, that, I started getting to the point where like trash trade. Yeah. And that's perfect. That was all we needed. You would just yell trash drag and we would move on. Yeah. But it was interesting though. I think the big head scratcher was the Eric Holla trade. And the more I think about it, the, the less I get it from Florida. That is true. That is probably the one trade that, looking back, I'm just like, I totally agree with you. I, I does not make any sense for Florida. But the one trade, and looking back because of his production already, has been the Tyler Toffoli trade for the Canucks. That has worked out beautifully for them so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if only the, the Canucks weren't in such a cap mess. That is true. That is true. Oh, well, I mean, they're going to be in a real cap trouble here in a couple of years when guys like Patterson, Quinn Hughes, Besser, all these guys are looking for big-time contracts, and they're going to get it. Because, honestly, at this point, I mean, Quinn Hughes is going to be rookie of the year. Like, there's no two ways he's not going to win at this point. Unless Kale McCart goes on a big run. True, but I don't know. I just, I don't see that happening. I see Quinn Hughes actually winning rookie of the year. And isn't that funny? The year Jack Hughes is drafted first overall, his younger brother ends up winning the Calder Trophy. Or, or is um, or is Quinn older than Jack? I think Quinn's older. Oh. But world works in mysterious ways. Well, I think there's just... The hard one is like $6 million for Louis Erickson, and they still haven't gotten rid of that one. Yeah, but that's one of those things where you look at Louis Erickson, and you're just like... Who will take that? That's the big thing. There's, there's a lot of teams that don't have the cap space anymore to do. Yeah. Arizona well, doesn't is, have it. Like, the Coyotes don't have it. Who has that kind of cap space anymore? We do. Yeah, that's true. I, well, the Tyler Myers contract, that's going to be bad it is, if you don't think it's bad already. Like, the dude's getting $6 million a year up till he's 35. Yeah, that... I understand the signing for the Canucks because they need 
that big body on the back end, but not good. He's more of a name more than anything else, and I, yeah. I and it's funny because I was talking to actually I was talking about your with yourself as well a couple of people I worked with is that you watch July first watches Vancouver goes after Tyson Berry. If they go after Barry, watch how bad the Canucks cap, uh, their cap hell and all that crap ends up working against the Canucks then. Well, they only have five million left. Like, yeah, and like Tyler Toffoli <laughs> comes off the books. They have to re-sign Jake for 10 and this year. Uh, you know what's funny? I'm going to go on the record. I don't think the Canucks are going to re-sign him. I, I don't know. Jake Furtan has been one of those guys who he's just disappointed so much in Vancouver. And there was so much expectations because he was the local boy and they made a big deal about him being from Vancouver, being drafted in the Canucks. He just has not worked out. And we, the Canucks already have a pretty solid young core there. I honestly wonder if maybe the Canucks either make a trade or they just dump Furtan altogether. Let him have a fresh start. It'd be crazy for them to do it because I think this is the year that he's he's finally put it together. Because like the points are coming, and he's only twenty three. True, but you always hear about the perceived partying off the ice, and and the Canucks in the past have had those kind of players. They had it with Shane O'Brien. They had it with Ryan Kessler. They had it with a number of guys who were big partiers off the ice, and maybe the Canucks don't want a repeat of the Shane O'Brien's and those kind of guys with their team. Because that's probably the only reason I would see Jake Furtanen maybe not being a Vancouver Canucks next season. But if they feel that his production outweighs the off-ice issues, then yeah, I would see the Canucks keeping him. Well, they might be able to sneak him in at $2 million as well. And that actually wouldn't be a bad number for Jake Furtanen. True. Yeah, so maybe the fact that he's kind of, like, he's struggled for the past few years of his career and not a terribly popular guy, then, yeah, might might sneak it through. But, yeah, Elias Pettersson's contract and Quinn Hughes' contracts are going to be bad. Like, they're going to be big. Yeah, and you also can't forget Thatcher Demko as well in goal. Yeah. Well, they'll probably, they probably won't bring back Jordy Ben. So that's $2 million off the books. Tyler Meyer... Well, I think Louis Erickson, my guess would be a compliance buyout. Yeah, either that or they try and bury him in the minors. Yeah, but maybe uh, well, maybe, maybe he doesn't have a no, um, like a no movement clause where he can't go to the minors, and they would just have to buy him out. Yeah, he just has a he has a full NTC, but he doesn't have an NMC. Oh, okay, yeah. So I would imagine with the Canucks looking to re-sign Patterson and these guys that he would go to Utica and play yeah. for the Utica Comets. Yo, do you think he'll get some steamed hams? No, because that's more of an Albany thing. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So, Tim, let's recap our week because I'm actually going to start off because this has been one of these weeks where I've not had a time to just relax because it's been a super busy week at work. We've had the theater group going on because they're doing the play spam a lot, which is based off the Monty Python. I think it was either a movie or a skin or whatever it was. So they do a whole play about it all week. <clears throat> Excuse me. They've been doing that. We've had, well, that's cool though. 
That is cool, and they throw a lot of money at to get these things. And I remember somebody was telling me a couple of years ago the lady that runs the the theater group at work was pissed because I, I think they didn't get what the hell didn't they get like Chicago or something? But they ended up getting Mamma Mia instead. But at the same time, fair. Yeah, so it's pretty cool, and it's been one of those things where there's just been communication has not been 100% clear on my end because, you know, one day I was, I nobody really reminded me I had to make coffee and all the stuff for the kids, so I ended up last minute trying to make everything as I'm cleaning up. Next day, I forget to put the snacks out. I'm rushing to put that out. And, yeah, it's just been one of those days. I've been starting later. And then, of course, at the end of the week, we had the parent reception for the theater group. And, yeah, it's been one of those days. Saturday, I was just on edge with everybody and everything. And the kids were just annoying me. And it's funny. Like, the, there's this one kid. I don't know his name. He was, like, fidgeting around with the milk machine because he thinks there's chocolate milk in there still. And I'm thinking... Dude, what are you doing? He's like, oh, well, where's the chocolate milk? I'm like, it's standing, it's right in front of you. It's in a jug. <sighs> you dumb shit. Fuck. Shit. Like, yeah, so that's just been my week. And Saturday night, I just said, you know what? Fuck this. I am done. I'm going home. I'm turning my phone off for two days. You people can leave me alone. Pretty much. Yeah. Actually, I actually want to talk to you about something. Because yeah. this past week, and this is really weird, because you know that I'm not a big U2 fan. Never have been. I, I admire their career. I admire the work that Bono does for charity. But I'm not a huge fan of their music. I've been in a weird U2 binge all week. Like, I've been listening to songs like Beautiful Day and One and desire and some of the, even going back to the really old stuff I'm like this is pretty good and it always happens every now and then with bands like U2 or Midnight Oil but the one thing I want to comment with you and I was watching old music videos of U2 is it me or did the edge always look like a middle-aged dad even in the 80s if you want uh you know I'm a big U2 guy that's why I'm asking here's the fun thing in each album Look at the band photos. You will notice about halfway through the 80s, so around the Joshua Tree, the Edge starts wearing a hat and never takes it off. Yeah, it kind of looks like a beanie. Balls it early. That's true. And when did he start growing the goatee? Was that in the uh, early 90s? I think it was early to mid 90s, yeah, because none of them really had facial hair until Rattle and Hump. It's funny because like, the Bono glasses started in the 2000s. Yeah, because he didn't have them all the way until Pop Mart, I think. Oh, God, I remember that. I have, yeah. to, what, I have to say, was Pop their worst record? Like, of all the records they've done? People will say either Pop, Zuropa, or Boy. I think Boy, get Boy. it's just early work, but I think it's still good. I'll defend Zuropa because it's more experimental than the others. And it includes uh, it includes one of Johnny Cage, sorry Johnny Cash's last songs too. Did it? Yeah, they did. There's a song called "The Wanderer" that they did with Johnny Cash, and Europa was '93 or '94. Yeah, so actually, when did Johnny Cash die? Uh, 2003, I want to say. Okay, I thought he died in the '90s. So no, because he was doing his records with um, Rick Rubin 
in the right. early to midnight because that's when he covered like um the fuck did he do rusty cage with Soundgarden. the big one was hurt by nine inch nails he yeah. covered yeah so he did a lot of those songs in the 90s but yeah it's funny like when i was going back and watching those old youtube videos is that even in rattle and hum like i think that's when i really begin to notice that the edge started looking more like a middle-aged dad and yet the rest of the band never seemed to age like that's the thing like regardless of what you may think of bono and his stupid glasses the reason why he wears them is actually pretty smart and makes a lot of sense. He's protecting his eyes. Exactly. Because he's said in interviews, like if he sees a camera flash, he's seeing that for the rest of the day. Yep. And you got to imagine like U2 is one of the biggest bands of all time. How many times has he gotten a camera or a camera flash in his face? And that's why he wears the glasses. So it's smart. I understand. But I have to say one of my favorite YouTube moments was still their episode of the Simpsons where Homer was running for sanitation commissioner and they're doing the, the YouTube concert in Springfield. Yeah. He's like, wow, look at him go. You're the real Lord of the dance. Homer. Homer. No, no, Bono, help me. Well, I think the big thing was, Oh, when was that? When did that episode come out? That was in the late 90s because that was on so, the Pop Mart tour because that's Pop when Mart, they had yeah. the really big, grandiose, uh, big stage. The television, event. yeah. Because I think Pop Mart's TV might still be the biggest TV. Well, it was the biggest TV used in for a concert at the time. Yeah, it almost bankrupt you two as well, that whole tour. And what's amazing is that's not the most ridiculous thing they did. Because uh, did you ever see the stage they used for uh, their No Line on the Horizon tour? That's one of their more recent concerts, correct? Yeah, that was 2010, and that stage was, it filled BC Place. That's right, because you went to that, didn't you? You went to the one at BC Place. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so. All I remember was when they played Vancouver last time and the edge fell off the stage. Vancouver? Yeah, it was Vancouver. Seattle. It was their open... No, it was Vancouver. It was at Rogers Arena. This is on their, their last tour or whatever they were on. They came to Vancouver and they were singing uh, Still Unfound What I'm Looking For and the Edge stepped off the stage and fell off. You know, that's not the first time he's done that. He, he that's did the, it. That's not the first time any rock star. Like, Steven Tyler has done it a couple of times. No, no, no. I mean, it's the second time the Edge has done it. Oh, really? Yeah, he did in Seattle back in, in 2000 and 2011 or 2012 uh they were doing yeah so what happened is they had to postpone the tour because i think it was the edge or if not it was bono yeah one of them fell off the stage on the first song of the concert during no line the the second run of no line horizon god those guys are just having the worst luck with with uh stages aren't they well if you watch what they do in concert it's a very choreographed show so like like uh when I went to see them in BC Place, uh, they, the Black Eyed Peas opened for them, and, you know, they're doing their dance thing, whatever. Within the first song, Bono has done four laps of the stage, and he has covered more space in one song than the Black Eyed Peas and all their dancers in their entire set. So, like, it's a very active, <coughs> they're very active performers, so it makes sense that they've fallen a lot. True, but you know what? And even looking back on that, like, the Black Eyed Peas just seem like a really weird opening act for you two to have yeah because the black eyed peas are were like very very successful on their own 
But I, I guess when, you know, a band like U2 comes to them and says, hey, we want you to come on tour with us, then you, you can't turn that down. Yeah, and I don't think, A, it really fit. And, B, I guess they were doing different kinds of shows because uh, in between the opening act and uh, U2 coming on, it was an hour of stage change. Yeah, that's a lot of time. Because I know what's the number of concerts I've seen. Like when I saw System of a Down, the Mars Volta played with them. When I saw Motley Crue the last time, they had Big Rack play with them. And Big Rack is more of a 90s alternative rock act more than anything else. So it really was really weird. It didn't really fit. But they were not too bad. Actually, I'm seeing them again in June when they come back with the Tea Party. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, because I know when I, I saw groups in Japan, I was actually really surprised at how quick the turnover was, but they didn't have a lot, that elaborate of a stage, to be mm. honest. So, like, they could turn over in five minutes. Yeah, the efficiency is really great in Japan. But it's also, U2 was, like, put, like, they, to get the light guys up, they had them in pods that were they were raising with cranes. Yeah, BC Place is a pretty big building, so I'm not really surprised you're doing that. Yeah, so it's like, just the demands are different. Yeah, it would be different if they're playing Rogers Arena, which is a smaller building than BC Place. Yeah, and you're not being loaded into U2's weird metal alien thing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Tim, now that we've talked about my week and U2, I gotta ask the all-important question, how has your week been? You know what, it's been pretty good uh so uh, there's a conveyor sushi belt place in uh, calgary that uh, was doing it was their 15 year anniversary so they're doing their cheap sushi plates for a buck 50 each okay so that was a really good deal and uh one of my buddies is has season tickets to the roughnecks so uh, we ended up going to a lacrosse game saturday night and then going and having sushi after and uh the roughnecks game was Probably one of the more contentious sporting events I've been to. You've told me this in the past. You've said, because you went to a cal- couple of Calgary Roughneck games, and you said that they're really entertaining, but the fans are also pretty insane for their team. Yeah. So, uh, the ref was very unpopular. Yeah? He did make some questionable calls, uh, especially with uh, assigning five-minute majors and... Uh, by the end of the night, there were sustained ref-you-suck chants. You know what's funny? When I went to see Canada play Russia when the World Juniors were here in Vancouver a few years ago, a number of the penalties against Canada, the Canadian fans started a ref-you-suck chant. Yeah. And it, so it's just one of those things where I'm surprised to hear it. Yeah, especially in a national lacrosse game too, right? Because... Lacrosse definitely has their diehard fans, but as terms of the national popularity among sports fans, like they'll always trail behind the NHL and whatever kind of pro sports in this country. Yeah, although the one thing I'm actually kind of surprised is the Roughnecks can fill the saddle dome. True, but I mean, you know, you can also look at the Toronto Rock too, right? The Toronto Rock consistently sells out Scotiabank Arena. But also because, well, number one, they, they're always winning. Like, that's a big thing. They've won so many titles since they've come in the league. But also, they're so much cheaper than going to see Leafs games. And maybe Calgary feels the same way about the Roughnecks being cheaper than the Calgary Flames. True. 
once you kind of pick up what lacrosse is doing, it's a really fun sport to watch. Yeah, I would imagine. I saw, I have never seen a lacrosse game myself, but I know one of my buddies is a cook at the golf course here in Duncan, and one of the guys he works with plays with one of the uh, Nanaimo lacrosse teams. So he was telling my buddy that, hey, if you ever want to come up to Nanaimo and watch a lacrosse game, just let me know. I'll give you tickets. Actually, it's kind of funny because uh, Mr. like our uh, grade 8 math teacher, Mr. King, used to play with uh, Nanaimo in the offseason as well. Did he really? I, I, I knew he played in the uh, National Lacrosse League, but I didn't realize he played in Nanaimo as well. Yeah, so a lot of the NLL guys will play for uh, like like the BC Summer Leagues as well, so like the Shamrocks and those those sorts of teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, it's just a way to get games in. Yeah, because the keep... NLL season is super short. Yeah, and to keep their conditioning up too, right? Yeah. yeah so I think the first time I actually watched a lacrosse game in person is I went up to Nanaimo. Solid. So Tim, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And we've talked a lot about, you know, we've recapped our week, previous episode, top of the hour, all that good stuff. One, seg- or one segment we haven't done for a little while is Discussion Point. So for those who don't know, Discussion Point is a segment where Tim and I will discuss something we either see online, whether it's a hot take, a news story, or just something completely random that we feel would be very entertaining to talk about. Now, I actually have a very good one because earlier this week, or earlier last week, I should say, with the trade deadline, TSN 1200 had former Ottawa Senator Mark Mathot on the show. And Ian Mendez, former guest on the show, he tweeted out, and I'll bring up the tweet right here. It says, It was great having at Mark Mathot 3 join us on the radio for trade deadline yesterday, but of all the expertise he brought to the table, nothing was more insightful than the face he used to make to watch Eric Carlson eat spaghetti with tons of ketchup. Now, this tweet really captured my imagination because, you know, I understand every NHLer has the pregame meal. And I know for myself doing this podcast, this is probably the first thing I've ever said. Like, I do that. I have a routine that I go through before we record the episodes. You know, I go work out in the morning. I skate a little bit, come home, shower, do whatever, have something to eat, take a nap, get up, have two bowls of cereal with an energy drink, and then I'm ready to go. And I'm very fascinated about the NHL players when it comes to their pregame meals. And a couple of ex-teammates of Mark Mathot and Eric Carlson actually responded to said thread. Now, the big one that I remember seeing was Kyle Turris responded to the tweet saying he doesn't know which is worse. Carlson putting ketchup on spaghetti or Chris Neal putting ranch dressing all over spaghetti. To which Chris Phillips also responded to Turris with or Turris gallon of cream sauce. So, Tim, I think this is a really great and very interesting thing that we got to bring up for discussion point. Which pregame meal captured your imagination more? Carlson's ketchup on spaghetti, Neil's ranch dressing, or Turris's gallon of cream sauce? They're, they're all awful. Like, I don't do heavy creams very well. So just thinking about the cream sauce makes my belly ache. Now, this is kind of funny because I have to say the tourist's gallon of cream sauce actually caught my imagination. It captured my imagination because, and you and I were talking about this in our thread, and I said, my guess is that it's a very thin cream sauce, but also there's no context on what exactly 
tourist is putting a gallon of cream sauce in? Like, is he making it a bowl, putting noodles and putting the cream sauce in? Does he have a big pot with the noodles with the cream sauce? Because I can understand that if he puts a big pot with the cream sauce in it, you know, you make it really creamy, you make it really smooth, you have a really good whatever, taste. But if you're putting a gallon in there, you're making it super, super soupy. And at that point, it's just, you're basically just fucking ruined it, in my opinion. But if it's a very heavy, like, thick cream sauce, then it's, it almost just looks like mud at that point. Yeah, that's, that's rough. And this is coming from someone who, uh, when traveling with Americans, asked them, what's the deal with ranch dressing? Because I'm just legitimately do not find ranch dressing appealing in the slightest. I find ranch, it depends on what you put the ranch dressing on. Like, if you're doing a salad or whatever that's perfectly fine or are you doing it for you know like a carrot dip or, or like a veggie dip okay that's fine chris neal putting ranch dressing on all over his spaghetti i i was kind of thinking about that because i was thinking you know okay i was just kind of thinking about this in my head because i'm thinking okay is it again there's no context to any of this like is there a spaghetti sauce involved is there any kind of sauce? Is it just virgin noodles? There's no context to any of this. So for myself, when I saw Chris Neal's, I'm thinking, okay, my guess is that he has virgin noodles. He puts some spaghetti meat sauce on it. I can understand. Like, here's a, this is gonna sound really, really disgusting and kind of weird. I can kind of see that if you want to put a tiny bit on there to get a little bit of the kind of a tangy taste to it, because I'll be the first to admit, like a spaghetti, like a meat tomato sauce at times can be pretty plain if you don't put spices in it. But I can kind of see, like if you put a little bit of ranch dressing in there, you get a little bit of a tangy taste to it. It would be okay, but you have to be very sparse with it. That's all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, because like, I just, it's like, I, actually it was really funny, and I know I've told this before, when I got stuck in Seattle and I ended up eating next to this family from Texas and they put ranch dressing on their burger. I'm like, come on, what's the point? You're well, just drowning out the flavor of the beef with the ranch dressing. Like, sure, it's an airport burger, but is it really worth just killing it with ranch? Well, in fairness, McDonald's Big Mac puts uh, Thousand Island dressing on it. That's all their Big Mac sauces. That's just, all it is, yeah. Just Thousand but, Island dressing. I mean, at the same time, that's A, a McDonald's burger, so it doesn't taste like anything to begin with. And B, it's not, here's a cup of ranch. Yeah, that's kind of weird. But that's also like when you go to places like Holland and they put mayonnaise on french fries. Yeah. It's fucking weird. I mean, this is the thing when it comes to ranch dressing, like you're saying with, on the burger, is that if you're making like a... How do I describe this? Like if you're making some sort of a sauce, maybe you put a little bit like you put ranch and a few other things in there and you stir it up all together so you get kind of a... And a very unique taste to it that i can see but if you're just putting ranch dressing on a hamburger then no that's that's just disgusting nothing's as disgusting though i'm sorry eric ketchup on spaghetti come on man that's honey boo boo levels of shit right there i mean it's tomato sauce <laughs> i'm not defending that one again as we we're saying there's no context to any of this maybe it's just virgin noodles with ketchup Maybe he cuts up little hot dogs and put it, puts it in there. I, I don't know. Like, and, and granted, I never, ever watched any of those Honey Boo Boo episodes. 
The only thing I remember was from the South Park episode where they parodied it. And Honey Boo Boo's having the heart surgery and Mama June's going, Honey Boo Boo! Honey Boo Boo! What? What you you gonna tell him about y'all heart? I'm gonna tell him my heart is sweeter than bacon, child. (laughs) I fucking just died laughing. Because anytime I've ever seen Mama June, they got it perfect. Oh my god, the South Park guys got that perfect. Yeah. I guess, like, maybe I'm not immune because I remember one time, Mom was out of town for some reason, so Dad was in charge, and uh, he didn't realize he was out of pasta sauce. So he just used salsa. What? (laughs) Okay, hold on, hold on. Now, did he put the salsa in the pot with the spaghetti? Or no, did... he heated it separately and then put it on as if it was a pasta sauce. <laughs> like, this is desperation mode, so it's a little <laughs> different. You know what? At that point, why didn't he just put, like, Parmesan cheese or something on it and melt it? He did that, too. With the salsa. With the salsa. I don't know. I don't know, man. I've got nothing. <laughs> I've got So, Tim, I guess that pretty much wraps up this ep- this version of Discussion Point. Unless you have any more comments you want to make about the pregame meals that said players are doing about. Nope. Okay. So, with that being said, Tim, it's time to segue into this little segment I like to call Top of the Hour. So, Tim, for this edition of Top of the Hour, once again, we don't have any Ovi Tracker or Thornton Watch, but we still got a couple of shout-outs to give out to. We're going to start off with Minnesota Wilds. Eric Stahl has passed Nino Niederreier for sixth on the all-time Minnesota Wild goal list with his 111th goal during their game versus the Detroit Red Wings. Stahl joined the Wild as a free agent in 2016. So you remember a few episodes ago, we were talking about Jonathan Huberdeau scoring port, point number 420, and we were commenting, they're like, wow, like the lack of talent on that Florida Panthers team is just crazy that 420 is the topper. Well, here's the crazy thing. You think the Florida Panthers were bad? Look at the Minnesota Wild. Like, how the fuck is Nito Niederreiter on that list? Eric Stahl has only been there, what, four years? Not and even. If that, and he's already six on the all-time goal list. I mean, I understand, like, their biggest goal-scoring threat was Marion Gabrick, but still, that's just sad. Yeah, like, it's even for a team that prides itself on, like, strong defense, that is, uh, that is something else. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, I mean, you can also look at the Columbus Blue Jackets because, what, their fifth or sixth player has, like, 70 goals, if that. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair. They're a newer franchise, I get that, but still. Well, actually, you know what? In fairness to Columbus, though, up until John Davidson and... uh, Christ, what's their GM's name? Uh, The Finnish Oh, Pekalet. That guy, yeah, up until they came into the Blue Jackets, like, they were just a hot mess. Like, they could not get that team going at all. And the second that they came along, 
they totally did a 180 and they've been a consistent playoff threat ever since. Yeah, well, it's amazing how uh, they could never get Rick Na- anyone to play with Rick Nash and all of a sudden yeah, Kekle- Yarmo Kekalaita comes in and just rebuilds the sucker. Yeah, and he's done it with some very, very smart trades and drafting. Because you remember during the Thomas Shabbat episode, we talked about, oh God, who was the player um, the Blue Jackets took in the first round that year? Uh, not Atkinson. Uh, oh, shoot. Sonny Milano? No. No. I'm going to quickly look this up because it was one of their like top, top defensemen too. Oh, Seth Jones? No, they trade for Seth Jones. No. Uh, hold on a second. 2015 NHL draft. All right, let's have a look. See, Columbus Blue Jackets, Zach Wierenski. That's who it was. Right. They took him sixth. No, sorry, eighth. Yeah, and you see a lot of those trades. Like he was taken eighth. Um, Nudavera was taken late in those rounds. They picked up Nick Foligno. They went out and got Sergey Bobrovsky, who's no longer with the team, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but that you could see the, the moves that they've made was really not made to try and keep one player in town. It was to try and build a competitive team year after year. Well, what's amazing is the Jackets will probably be in the playoffs this year, too, after uh, Panarin and Bobrovsky dipped. Like, I think most other teams, something like that would have sunk them. Oh, and you can't forget that Matt Duchesne and Kyle Turris, not Kyle Turris, uh, Dezingle and Duchesne both left town, too. Yeah. Yeah, that would have killed a lot of teams. Yeah, and that's really... you got to tip your hat to the Blue Jackets front office staff for building that team in Columbus that, regardless of how what said player leaves, they can still build a competitive team around them. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, we got to give out another shout-out. Our next shout-out goes out to NHL referee Justin St. Pierre wrapped his 1,000th official NHL game on Thursday night. St. Pierre, who started roughing NHL games in 2006, was voted as the worst official in the NHL by 42% of the players that answered the athletic players' poll. So yeah, take that, Tim Peel. There's somebody worse than you. Yeah, I can't believe there's someone worse than Tim Peel either. Well, you know what's what? Did you um, did you see on Twitter one of the next games after this that St. Pierre reffed? There was like a whole section of people in referee St. Pierre jerseys. <laughs> like that amazing. is that's hilarious and you know what's funny this is a story i was very on the fence whether i should include it because i'm looking at it, i'm like oh i don't know i mean maybe okay sort of but at the time that i put it on there we had nothing we had like two stories and i was like oh okay fuck i'll just put it on there for some padding oopsie <laughs> But no, and I think um, the source that I got this from said that Tim Peel, I think he's refed almost 100 playoff games. This guy's refereed eight. How bad, I really don't want him touching it. How bad of a referee do you have to be if Tim Peel gets more playoff games than you do? Many, 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 many. Let's go into our next story because we've got a retirement to talk about. Former Buffalo Sabres captain Thomas Vanek has announced his retirement at age 36. 
Vanek, drafted fifth overall by the Buffalo Sabres in 2003, played 15 seasons in the NHL, recording 373 goals, 416 assists for 789 points in 1,029 games with the Buffalo Sabres, New York Islanders, Montreal Canadiens, Minnesota Wild, Florida Panthers, Vancouver Canucks, Columbus Blue Jackets, and two separate stints with Detroit. Dude almost played for half the teams in the league. It's true. Thomas Vanek, when talking about the Buffalo Sabres of the past 15 years, is a, is an interesting person to talk about. Because I think this is a guy that, especially in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when the Buffalo Sabres really began to start tanking and really started to go downhill, Thomas Vanek was one of the bright spots on that team. And Thomas Vanek is one of these guys that... As I was saying, of the last 15 years of the Buffalo Sabres, if you were to talk about the five best players on the Buffalo Sabres they've ever had since 2005, that five would be Jack Eichel, Ryan Miller, Chris Drury, Daniel Breer, and Thomas Vanek. Now keep in mind, three of those guys were captains. Two of those guys left the team in 2007 Vanek almost became the third when the Edmonton Oilers threw all that money out of the Buffalo ended up having to match. Yeah, that's $7 million salary. It's true. And I actually want to quickly talk about the departures of Daniel Briere and Chris Drury because 2007 was not a great year for either Buffalo sports teams. Well, yes, the Sabres were the President's Trophy winner. Yes, they went to the Conference Finals again for second straight year. The departures of Briere and Drury did a huge, huge hit to the perception of the Buffalo Sabres. Because that was a perception that star players do not want to be in Buffalo. And it's not just the Sabres of that time that it did it to. The Buffalo Bills have gone through the same thing when... Willis McGee said the same thing. He says, yeah, I don't want to be in Buffalo no more. And the Buffalo Bills also got hit harder this past season when Antonio Brown flat out told Buffalo, I'm not playing for you, when he got traded to them. Was that the guy who retired at the first game just so he could get off the team? No. Um, that was one of their cornerbacks. <laughs> no. Uh, Antonio Brown was the superstar wide receiver from the Pittsburgh Steelers who basically had feuded with Ben Roethlisberger and been too much of a head case for the Steelers, the Steelers got rid of them. So they traded him to Buffalo for like a second or a fourth round pick. I can't remember where they got it for him initially. I texted one of the guys I work with who's a big Bills fan. I was like, man, I cannot believe you got Antonio Brown. An hour later, the trade got next. Antonio <sighs> Brown told the Steelers, I'm not going to Buffalo. He later gets traded to Oakland, plays maybe one preseason game there, gets released by the Raiders, goes to the Patriots, gets released by them because he he was being accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Wow. But I, it's... Go ahead. Yeah, it's interesting that no one wants to play for these Buffalo sports teams. I, you have to wonder if upstate New York is not known as a nice place, so I wonder, is it the city? Is it the Pagulas? Who own both teams? Like, what's going on? Well, the thing is, is that in 2007, Terry Bragula had not owned the Sabres yet. Because he was still a few years away from that. But I still maintain that 
Briere and Drury both leaving the Sabres, that hurt the Buffalo Sabres in a way they have still never recovered from. Yeah, and you could almost say that uh, Drury leaving was a blessing in disguise because, like, he never got back to the level of production that he had in Buffalo with the with the Rangers. No, and where Daniel Briere went off to Philadelphia, and he continued having success. But Buffalo is one of those teams that, and it's funny because, you know, when you talk to or you hear from a lot of the older players that play for him, like the Gilbert Perros, the Pat LaFontaine's, the Dominic Hossacks, they talk so highly about Buffalo and their sports fans when they played there. And you can talk even with a lot of the ex-Buffalo Bill players from the Super Bowl losing teams. A lot of them still live in Buffalo. A lot of them never left. And I always think about that. I'm thinking, you know, because I've always been of the mindset that when before Jack Eichel signed his extension, I was saying, I said, I bet you anything, anything, first chance he gets, he's leaving. And then he went off and signed that extension with the Sabres. So I think that's really, to me personally, I think that's the first step towards help rebuilding the image and the perception of the Buffalo Sabres among NHLers. Yeah. Well, I think at the same time, uh, I think the Senators do need a bit of that rehabilitation as well because you kind of have it with a lot of the players like you have Alfredson and Neil and Chris Phillips who all still live in the Ottawa area but then uh, Ottawa is a no-go destination for modern players yeah because I don't know if you saw this there was either a tweet or there was an article that came out a few months ago and it was this NHL sports agent talking about players and their you know the teams that they do not want to go to Buffalo and Ottawa were right at the top and and that's funny because I was listening to the Sens call-ups and uh, they were talking about the low attendance and when guys like Jason Spezza and Robin Leonard come back and they play for when they play for other teams and then they come back they talk so highly about Ottawa and they said this is such a shame that nobody's coming to the games anymore. Because they were there when the buildings were full and the fans were coming and the team was good. So for me, I mean, and you know, we were talking about, we were talking about Ottawa. I think the first building block, like I said, with Jack Eichel and Buffalo, Thomas Shabbat re-signing to eight years was the first building block towards us rebuilding our perception. I think when Brady Tuchuk re-signs in the offseason and with the potential of Alexa Lafaniere landing in Ottawa too could be a big, big boost to the perception of the city of Ottawa and the team. Yeah. Well, I think the big one is the body bags have to open. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but you know what? I'm really hoping that, you know, the fault actually opens for guys like DeChuck and when Lafonniere arrives, because, believe me, you get those guys in town and you build a good team around them, the fans will come back. Oh, for sure. A winning team always does that. You could say whatever you want about ownership because the city and the fans love a winner. Yep. Look at the Dallas Cowboys, for example. Think of what a fucking asshole Jerry Jones may be. The Cowboy fans still go to games. If you want a perfect example, Al Davis was the same way with the Raiders. He was so hated among the owners, and yet the fans came. 
Well, they're not a great examples because the fans liked him. Like, the fans love him. Well, not so much Al Davis in the later years when he was dying and the team was shit, but you know what I mean? Like, a winner always brings out the fans, regardless of who's at the helm in ownership. Mm-hmm. Although, at the same time, you have to wonder how how, how the Leafs survived Harold Baller. That's true, but the Leafs are one of those teams, and Phyllis Pizzito said this best, he said the Leaf fans are the are the biggest suckers in the world because they'll go and watch a losing team every night. Fair. Yeah. Speaking of losing culture and shitty ownership, we got to talk about the New York Islanders because the New York Islanders have announced they will play all home playoff games this season at the Nassau Coliseum and will return full-time to play all their home games at the Coliseum next season. It's great to this see that. This is great. This is because awesome. that Odyssey into the Barclays Center has not worked. No, and there's so many obvious problems with the Barclays Center. Number one, it's not built for hockey. Nope. It, it was never built for hockey. It was built for basketball. And also, it's great to see that they're going back to Nassau Coliseum because with the Islanders now having a good team on the ice, Fort never lose is going to be a hot ticket again up until the, the new buildings opened up at Belmont Park. Yeah, I'm actually, I guess it's one of those things where it's like, part of me is like, I know buildings, after a while you have to blow up the building, but you have to wonder if there's ways you could just refurbish these buildings. Like, it'd be so cool to like, say like a hundred years from now, oh, this is where, this is the ice we want our first Stanley Cup on. Like, losing originally Yankee Stadium and stuff like that. Like, there's got to be ways you can modernize these stadiums while still keeping the character. That's true, but the problem is is that with the economics of the NHL changing and these teams getting the new buildings and you get much more revenue out of them, there's always the, there's always the people that say that that's great that you have this, the history and the nostalgia but the owners are looking to make money at this. Mm-hmm. New buildings do that because you get much more revenue because you can add more ad space. You can get more suites. You get a lot more money going into them than playing at these older arenas. Now, the big exception to that is Madison Square Garden where the Rangers play for so many years and the Knicks play. Like They did that big renovation a few years ago, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, they're making more money with that now than they did. Before the renovation. Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking. Is like, there's got to be a way you can renovate these old arenas to keep the character while building a modern product. But the problem is, is that the difference between Nassau Coliseum and Madison Square Garden is that one of them is smack dab in downtown New York City, and the other one is in the suburbs. True. And I guess the other thing is... If you take down Madison Square Gardens, you're going to do a lot of damage to Penn Station. Yeah, because a lot of these old stadiums were connected to the train stations, right? And Yankee Stadium was the exact same way. Yankee Stadium was attached to, I can't remember what subway station it was. Like, they were really, very close. And same Penn way, Station's a major fucking station. Or same with uh, Fenway Park in Boston, too, right? And Fenway Park is the oldest I think, I'm not mistaken, the oldest professional sports building in North America. Hmm. Although it's funny because uh, 
it wasn't until the Air Canvas Center that uh, Scotiabank was uh, attached, like the Leafs played in a building attached to Union Station. Because Maple Leaf Gardens is just close to a TTC stop. And I don't think the TTC stop existed when Maple Leaf Gardens was opened. No, because I'm sure that was built post-arena opening, right? Because they saw that... They saw an opportunity to build the line right there because you have an arena where you have a lot of events in the city, especially in downtown Toronto. So you think, okay, we have a lot of people, a lot of events going in this building. We need a way to get these people to that building. And building building the transit center is the best way to do it. Exactly. Although, like, the yellow line Toronto is so weird. Because it's... It's a north-northbound line. Right. Because it just does a loop through... De- it does like a U-shaped loop around downtown. Kind of weird. Yeah. So, Sam, we only got one signing to talk about this week. The Vegas Golden Knights have re-signed William Carrier to a four-year, $5.6 million contract extension with an AAV of 1.4. Fuck's sake, sneeze. Come on out. <laughs> <laughs> Carrier has recorded 7 goals, 11 assists for 18 points in 65 games for Vegas this season at the time of the signing. You know, he is a very good fourth liner. I'm always a little nervous about giving fourth liners more than a million bucks a year. True, but you know... But he is a very good fourth liner. Yeah, but at 1.4? That's pretty solid money for a bottom six guy, though. Yeah. And he's very good at what he does. His only problem is, is a dude is a penalty magnet. Both for and against. Yeah, so I've really got no comments to make on this. Which means one thing, Tim. I guess that wraps it. Oh, oh, God. Tim. Uh-huh. Tim, do you remember that sign that we bought? You know, the uh, insert days since Melnick story? Oh, you mean the opening sequence to The Simpsons? Yeah. Put it back at zero. Uh-huh. So, Tim, I'm going to bring in, I'm going to insert a little clip in post. And I'm going to put it right here. Oh. Yep. The Ontario Labor Relations Board is ordering Ottawa Senators owner Eugene Millick to pay $13,000 to pilot... Luella Morgan for unpaid wages, vacation pay, severance, and a week's worth of unpaid benefits. Morgan, who has submitted her resignation as chief pilot for Melnick last May, had reported reportedly noticed that her pay had not been deposited in her bank account and her services were terminated following multiple inquiries from Morgan to Melnick. Fuck. How long has it been since we've had a Melnick story, Tim? Quite a while, which is nice. I know. God, to think that we almost had to put three hooks on there for the amount of days that we've had since the Melnick story. Yeah. We were so close. Close. But here's hoping we can go the rest of the year without it. This, this is just such a weird story. This is a story which... I really... I'm not gonna lie. I had no overly big opinion on it because I was just wa- reading it thinking oh for god's sakes Melnick come on Eugene how many how many months has it been since we had a story about you come on you were doing so good yeah but what's it gonna do so what now like is 
Pierre Dorian or one of our, you know, equipment manager going to start flying the plane or what? Maybe we can get our own tempo, guy. Okay? Hey, you know what, Tim? You can talk all the shit you want about David Ayres, but we've got ourselves our own NHL feel-good story for the week. Ooh. Yeah. So, Tim, I guess that wraps up Top of the Air for this week. Hold on a second. I'm just going to quickly edit right there. There we go. So, Tim, which means we're going to wrap up Top of the Air, and we're going to head off into the games, because we got four games to talk about this evening. We've got the Sens versus the Blue Jackets, Sens versus the Predators, Canucks versus the Senators, and Tank Bowl! Red Wings versus the Senators. But before we do that, let's hit the music. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> okay, Tim, let's start talking about the Sens versus the Blue Jackets. This is a 4-3 Columbus overtime victory. Sens goals were scored by Connor Brown with two and Colin White. Blue Jackets goals were scored by Nick Foligno with two, Stefan Matteau, and ML Bremstrom in overtime. Shots were 45-33 for Columbus. Nick Polino opens the scoring to make it 1-0 Columbus on a play that started behind the net. Connor Brown ties the game at 1, putting it top corner from a bad angle. Connor Brown gets a second of the night to make it 2-1 centers on the power play. Foligno gets a second of the night to tie it at 2 after Ottawa's stick-check play to get it out of the zone doesn't clear. Colin White scores to make it 3-2 Sens on a scramble. Stefan Matteau tips in the point shot to tie the game at 3. And ML Bremstrom gets the OT winner for the Blue Jackets. So I had a condensed watch this game because we were recording last week's episode, the game, the night that it was happening. So I do got a couple of notes. And as always, we're going to start off with the goalies. Marcus Hogberg, 41 saves, a .911 save percentage. From what I was seeing in the condensed version, Tim, I thought he played a fantastic game versus Columbus. Well, I mean, anytime that you have a point nine, a per, save percentage in the point nines, you're doing something right. And uh, he faced, he turned away a lot of shots. Yeah, like, and let's that, be real here. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that we've noticed over the last couple of episodes is that we are getting strong goaltending out of all of our guys, whether it be Marcus Hardberg and Craig Anderson, because you, you see a lot of the games they're over nine hundred save percentage. A lot of those games. Yeah, and what's kind of fun about this game is this was the only game on trade deadline day. Like, Pajot was in Columbus, and it's like, lol, you're not playing. Uh, I don't think Michael Pekka was even, sorry, Matthew Pekka was even there until the second period. No, we started the game with 10 skaters. Right, because Balsers didn't show up in time. Was it Balsers that didn't show up on time? Uh... Because of call-up? Yes, I want to say. Yeah. I do actually agree with Ian Mendez when he said that he doesn't believe that there should be any games on trade deadline day. And I agree with that. Yeah, because these teams, there's just so much motion on that day. There is, but also because you're oversaturating a lot of people on that day with a lot of trades, that what the last thing they want to do is to sit down for two and a half hours and watch a hockey game afterwards. Pretty much. Let them breathe. You want to presume games the next day? No problem. Because you say you make a trade, your your other side of the country. What if that player can't get there in time? That's why I say. Like, like, like Matthew Pekka? Yeah, exactly. Start the games the next day. Let the players arrive there and get suited up for their new team. Speaking about someone who needs a breather, 
this is a game or a team that is aiming for the gutter. Why are you running Thomas Shabbat 33 minutes? Why are you running Hainsey, Zaitsev, and Riley 25 and 26? Play your uh, play your other guys. Like, there's no reason Shabbat's playing over half an hour. Well, and that's the one thing, and we've talked about this several, so much on here on the show, is that I do have to praise DJ Smith. He's managing Shabbat's minutes better in the second half of the season. But then you have games like this where he's playing um, 33 minutes. And that's going to be a theme for the rest of the week. And there's just no sense. True. Absolutely none. Maybe the reason why they're doing it is, is <laughs> sounds kind of stupid, but maybe because they have lost Dylan DeMello, they lost Cody Golubuff, they've lost some defensemen on the back end. Maybe that's why they feel like they have to play these guys so much more minutes. Well, it's like, couldn't you just bring up, like, Willanen or Brandt, like, Willanen or something if you don't trust in Golland? Well, is Willanen even clear to play yet? Uh, he's playing in, Be- he's playing in, uh, I almost said Binghamton, Bellevue. I don't agree with bringing up Willanen because he hasn't played yet. I would maybe say Branstrom, bring him up for the next, the last 20-something games of the season, let him have another shot at the NHL. But I also kind of see the flip side of that where, they're building towards something really great in Belleville right now, and they want to make a playoff run. So I can kind of see why the Senators don't want to bring them up. But also, Tim, do you want to fuck up the tank or not? Well, I mean, I'm not fucking up the tank if I just say, hey, let's play our crappy defense more and let Tom Shabbat live. Damn, I'm sorry. I snapped at you. Yeah. Like... Yeah, bring up Angalan's minutes, bring down Shabbat. Sure, I'll let Hainsey and Zaitsev play 30 minutes. I don't give a shit. Yeah, that's true. However, I mean, not all of these games can be tank balls, so... Maybe oh, that's... baby. Yeah. I do have a couple of players that I do want to talk about. Connor Brown, two goals and five shots. This is yet another one of these games that... Connor Brown, to me... I've, I'm always happy when we get these kind of performances out of Connor Brown because... The one thing I've noticed throughout the season is that you usually don't see him on the wrong side of the puck, and he's usually in the right position. He's always battling. He's always trying to get those scoring chances, and this is just one of the games where he was rewarded two goals. Totally, and this is a weird game for the Senators because somehow this edition of the Ottawa Senators, most of them are on the right side of the puck. It's just weird. Yeah, another guy who was actually on the right side of the puck despite his down season was Colin White with one goal and three shots. Yeah, and he looked good doing it. The one thing that really sucks about this game is Duclair going down. That guy cannot buy a break. That is true, but I was thinking about this because he went through his 20-game goal streak and he went down in this game. I often wonder how much of those two things will factor a against Anthony Duclair when they go to the contract negotiations this offseason. Probably a ton. Yeah, because honestly, when coming into the second half, Duclair had all the leverage. And now that these have happened, the leverage has more swung towards Pierre Dorian, where Dorian has more leverage. He's like, well, we can give you this, but we have the evidence to prove you didn't score in 20 games, you were injured, your production wasn't there in the second half. I think Duclair's leverage is gone at this point. Last comment I want to make on this game, and I always want to make these comments every time we play the Blue Jackets, 
I still love the fact that every time the Blue Jackets score, they have the cannon go off. Yeah, that's, I love it. That's a very, very cool prop. And that's something that is so distinctly Columbus because of their attachment and the history, especially with the Civil War in Ohio. Yeah. No, and I, I love it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I love the fact that Dean Brown tweeted out that every time he comes to Columbus, even though he realizes the cannon's there, it still scares the crap out of him every time it goes off. Well, I mean, if you're not used to having a cannon going off in your ears, shit's spooky. Sure. I would love to go to a game in Columbus just to see the cannon go off. That would be cool. Yeah. Well, it's like in uh, Calgary where every time they score a goal, they're shooting flame geysers in the air. Yeah, or down in Tampa, every time they score a goal, they have the the lightning orb. Oh, the Van generator or whatever it's called? Yeah. So, Tim, do you want to head off into the second game of the evening? Yeah, one we watched. Sens versus Predators. This is a 3-2 to two Predators victory. Sens goals were scored by... Hudson Macho! And Philip Shalapik. Predators goals were scored by Colin Blackwell, Ryan Ellis, and Victor Arvidsson. Shots were 35-33 for Ottawa. A somewhat even game overall, Ottawa started off the game throwing the body with Brady Tuchuk starting it off and creating scoring chances where they would score twice. However, Nashville outplayed Ottawa in the second period, scoring three goals, taking the lead, to which they would carry to the victory. So we're going to start off this game with two words. Bobby Ryan. He's back, baby. Four shots, his first game back from his stint in rehab for alcohol abuse. Now, let's actually talk... Let's get... Let's take this minute to talk about Bobby Ryan because it's very safe to say Bobby Ryan has been a lightning rod for criticism since he arrived in Ottawa, whether it's been his contract, his production, his perceived poor attitude off the ice. A lot of this stuff was always right for criticism. And Bobby Ryan, I think for myself has been a guy where you knew he had the talent you just did not see that on a consistent basis. Like, yeah, you would see it in the 2017 playoffs, or you would see it in the NHL 100 Classic when he stripped Drew out of the blue line, or even when he went through the whole LA Kings team a few years ago. But that was the exceptions. We never saw this on a consistent basis. And now that we have this context as to why... Well, we always knew that Bobby Ryan was a guy who led... Probably a harder life than almost any of us will. Because we're talking about a guy who grew up in witness protection. That is true. A guy whose mom died three years ago. That is true. And now that we have that context with his, his addiction and his alcohol abuse, a lot of the criticism against Bobby Ryan makes sense as to why. And that was always the one thing that we as fans, and we were talking about this a few weeks ago with Jay Bonemeister, and we're going to bring it up again. These professional athletes, as fans, we tend to not think of the human side of these players. We don't. I'm just as guilty of this. Like, And, you know, in the 2017 playoffs when Eric Carlson played on one ankle, we thought, wow, this guy's amazing. Like, this guy's a warrior. 
This guy played on a freaking almost a broken ankle. Can you imagine what Eric Carlson's going to look like when he's 40 trying to walk? Or even you want to look at other players. Like you look at the Chris Neals, the Anton Volchenkovs, the Brian McGrattens, guys who sacrificed their bodies for, these, for this team. And the fans loved them. They think, wow, this guy's a warrior and they would do anything. Imagine how those guys now feel off the ice post-career. And especially with Brian McGratton having his own substance abuse issues. And actually, this was a very valid point somebody brought up, is that there has been a number of Ottawa Senator players who've dealt with substance abuse, whether it be Brian McGratton, Ray Emery, uh, who else would it Well, Bobby Ryan being another one, Robin Leonard, and Nate Thompson. These are five ex-senators who've all dealt with substance abuse with Bobby Ryan, Nate Thompson, and Brian McGrattan all recognizing during their career they have a problem. Well, I wonder if it's just maybe the Senators organization is a healthy place to be for these sorts of people if they're able to recognize mid-career. But the thing is, is that I'm trying to remember, I I want to say I think Nate Thompson was with the Senators when he recognized he had a problem. Top of my head, I can't remember that. I think Bobby Ryan especially did. McGratton figured that out when he was in the Phoenix. I think Razor found that out later in life. And Robin Leonard, of course, he had his demons with mental health. And he dealt with that when he was in Buffalo. <clears throat> but it's really sad when you look at those players because, as I said, you tend to not think of the human side of these players. Because they're yeah. in the spotlight, because they're making millions of dollars, because we see them game after game after game as fans of this team. Well, the other thing is it kind of makes you wonder how many of these folk, like folks on other teams have demons that you don't know about. And like some of the big party names like Mike Richards and stuff, yeah, it's obvious, but you have to, you have to wonder how many of these guys are suffering in silence. Exactly. And I mean, you can even look at Rick Rippon, right? And Rick Rippon was well known to have, be dealing with uh, critical depression and a number of ex-NHLers have come out post-career with addiction issues, whether it be I think Jeff Cortnell, I think, was one of them. And, of course, you're talking about Mike Richards, but Jarrett Stoll was another guy with the Kings. Like, Richards and Stoll lost their careers. They lost their careers over this. <clears throat> and I, it's, one of the, it's a really sad thing, and I really have a lot of respect for Bobby Ryan to not only recognize he had a problem, but he recognized he needed to change. Recognizing the problem is only step one. It's true. And, you know, because there's always been the stigma with mental health is that, you know, that you're weak and you are, you're not tough enough. And there's always that stigma behind mental health, which over the last several years with the Bell Let's Talk Day and Michael Landsberg's Sick Not Weak, and now you're looking the same with addiction. When you when you see players like Bobby Ryan and Mike Richards and these guys have come out about their substance abuse, and you were talking about Bobby Ryan's off ice issues from childhood, like he's not the only player who's dealt with childhood trauma. Bobby Ryan dealt with being in witness protection. You can look at Patrick O'Sullivan was physically abused by his father. Curtis Joseph went through his whole thing. Theo Fleury was sexually abused by his head coach. And you look at the problems that these guys have had off the ice. 
and you tend to not think about that because you only see them as a professional athlete. Yeah. As for the game itself, it was kind of a boring game, to be honest. It was. But I'll tell you one guy who really, really tried his best to make this interesting, and that, of course, is the real American, Brady Chuck, with four shots. Now, the reason why I want to bring him up right after Bobby Ryan, if you've ever wanted a clear snapshot of why Brady is such a fan favorite, watch the first 30 seconds of this game. He goes out, he throws himself into everybody. That hit on Roman Yossi where he slid into Yaros, or Saros, or whatever his name is, you're just like, wow, Like this guy will do anything for this team. And then Ryan Johansson cross-checked him from behind. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Brady Kachuk doing what he does best of breaking muck and just going for it. I actually really like Thomas Shabbat this game. I do play too much again, but it just felt like such a... Like, it seemed like Ottawa, outside of the Shabbat pairing, didn't really have much going for them. And it seemed like Nashville didn't really care. True. No, and I absolutely agree with you on Shabbat because that was the one note I have with his one goal and four shots. Is that consistently throughout this game, he was one of the best senators in this game. Now, going back to what I was saying about Brady to Chuck really quick, and this was a comment that we've been making all year, is that the Ottawa Senators are playing more like a team. There was a moment in this game that really resonated. Me watching it personally because, and you know, going back to the game versus Tampa where... Yanni Gouda hit Borvieski from behind and Dylan Tomello fought him. There was a moment in this game where Roman Yossi hit Thomas Shabbat from behind and Scott Sabrin jumped him. And you're thinking, this would have never happened two, three years ago. The guy would have got hit from behind and nobody would have jumped in. But now since Brady Chuck arrived and since you see that the culture of the Ottawa Senators has changed... Plays like this are not going unscathed anymore. And I think that's really, really great to see moving forward. Yeah, and I think that's definitely one of the... It is one of the signs of the buy-ins that you can tell that it's like, I'm not going to let you get away with a hit on one of my guys, you know? Absolutely. And that's and like I was saying, this is another reason why this Senators team, the feeling of the team is so much different. Because you'll see guys that stick up for one another. And, you know, it's not just Brady Chuck or Mark Borieski. It's your Dylan DeMellos, your Scott Sabrins, and hell, even some of the bottom six guys. Like, I saw it with Ennis. I saw it with Amesikoff. I saw it with uh, Anisioff. Like, they would jump into the play if they had to. And, and that's really great to see. Uh-huh. Another guy I want to quickly talk about, Tim, Craig Anderson, 30 saves, a .909 save percentage. This is yet another game where I thought Craig Anderson played solid as well. Yeah, and dude faced a lot of shots. He did, and they weren't terrible shots either. Like, they were decent enough shots, and that's the one thing I've really been happy with Craig Anderson is that for the criticism that we have given Craig, and it was fair, our criticism was fair against Craig Anderson... The fact that he's having bounce-back games when we do put him in net is really great to see. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't think I have too much more to say about this game. Yeah, it's like, it's just one of those games. I think this is the first game that I noticed that Jace Harlock was a person. 
That's true, and apparently he was noticeable in the Red Wings game too, which I also didn't see, but that's another one of those things. But I do have one final comment before we go into the third game of the evening. And you know me, like you know I'm a big guy in the music. We were talking about you two earlier in the episode. Oh, fuck me. This, this sneeze is going to drive me crazy too. Oh, shit. <laughs> Here we go. Is that you know that I'm a big music guy. And you know... Fuck me. You alright? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just a cold. Is that... One genre of music I've never been a fan of at all is country music. Now, given that this game was in Nashville, the one thing I tend to forget, much like with the Cannon and Columbus, one thing I love when we played the Predators in Nashville, Nashville uses the song Like It, Love It by Tim McGraw. Even though I don't like country music, I do actually like that song. It's a catchy song. It makes a great goal song. And they played a lot of the 90s country, which is the stuff that even I, as much as I'm not a country guy, I don't mind some of that stuff. Like, they played Tim McGraw. They played Garth Brooks. And when I was thinking about this, I went back and watched some of those really old 90s country music videos. And some of them are funny as hell. Like, there was one by uh, John Michael Montgomery called Sold, where he's just an auctioneer and you get all the people, like, line dancing. It's kind of funny, man. I don't know. And that's just like, oh, this is so goofy. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Tim, do you want to head on into the third game of the evening? Yeah, let's do it. Canucks versus Senators. This is a 5-2 Senators victory. Canucks goals are scored by JT Miller and Tyler DeFoley. Sens goals are scored by Bobby Ryan with three, Connor Brown, and Rudolph Balsers. Shot for 34-25 for Vancouver. Connor Brown opens the scoring for Ottawa to make it 1-0 on a shot that sneaks past Demko. Bobby Ryan tips in the Zaitsev point shot to make it 2-0. JT Miller hammers one home to make it 2-1. Rudolph Balser scores to make it 3-1 Senators, cleaning up the rebound. Tyler DeFoley scores to make it 3-2 on a redirect. Bobby Ryan gets his second of the night to make it 4-2. And Ryan pots the empty netter to get the hat trick to give Ottawa a 5-2 win. Now... I did condense watch this game, but I had a very, very good reason why. Because this was a Sportsnet Pacific game. Because I yep. live on BC and the Canucks have this game on their Sportsnet feed. This game was blacked out on Game Center. And I did yep. not have this game recorded on Pacific. Because we have a box, like a cable box downstairs, but we don't have a TV connected. Because my buddy who moved into his new place has the, our old TV. So I didn't get a chance to watch the game. And that's kind of a piss-off because, honestly, what if you don't have cable? I'm thinking about this. What if you don't have cable, but you have Game Sucks Center? To be you, says the Rogers Corporation. And you know what? This is not the first time this has happened. Because I, I remember a couple of years ago, the Canucks were playing the Senators in, in Ottawa. Sportsnet Pacific didn't carry it. And yet, Game Center was blocked out. Yeah. That's a fucking piss off. The amounts of shit they don't give. Yep. But one but. guy who did give a shit in this game, and this is the only note that we are going to talk about with this game, Bobby Ryan. Three goals on three shots. Move over David Aris. There's a new NHL feel-good story in town. And I'm just going to quickly do this, Tim, because Bobby Ryan deserves it.
it was a hell of a game that Bobby Ryan played. And also, that Kachuk-Norris-Ryan line is a beautiful combination of players because you have the smooth skating playmaking of Norris, the muck racing of uh, both of uh, Bobby Ryan and uh, Brady Kachuk. It was beautiful, and it worked to perfection tonight. I love the fact that somebody on Twitter made the point of saying, when do we start calling this line the Team America line? Yeah, they are all Americans. Yeah, or just called the uh, America Fuck Yeah line. Yeah, uh, because they were fantastic. I know you said that you only want to talk about one point, but it's good that Hogberg finally got a win. That's true. And Hogberg is one of these guys, Like when I watched the feed... Because I have a coworker who's a Canucks fan, and apparently she was saying the, the game wasn't that great. But when I was watching it, I'm thinking, really? The Canucks didn't look all that bad in this game. They looked really... They had a lot of speed. They looked like they were getting some good shots off. And Marcus Hogberg shut the door. Yeah, no, Hogberg was fantastic, and uh, the Sens forwards cleaned up the rest. Uh, I thought the Real American line, they had a great night. Uh, Thomas Shabbat dominated and he was on ice for all but one of the goals and that's great to see mm-hmm. and Chris Tierney with three assists and that Balser's goal was actually beautiful just being right place right time nice cleanup. so Tim do you have any more comments you want to make before we head on into the fourth and final game in the evening Man, it's awesome to have Bobby Ryan back. I know. It's so good to have him back. And I love the fact that the fans started the Bobby, Bobby chant after every goal. Because you can see he was very, very emotional on the bench. I mean, wouldn't you be? Fair enough. So, Tim, let's turn our attention to the fourth and final game of the evening. Red Wings versus Senators. Or should I say, it's time for Tank Bowl! I'm taking it. I love it. I love the fact that in post I can put the DJ horn in there for Tank Bowl. Well, look, I don't want to rip off Urinating Tree by taking his meme, but, you know, it still works. Red Wings, still works. Red Wings versus Senators. This is a 4-3 to three Senators shootout victory. Red Wings goals are scored by Franz Nielsen, Dylan Larkin, and Sam Gagne. Senators goals are scored by Artem Anizov with 2, plus the shootout winner, and Scott Saverin. Shots for 39-28 for Ottawa. Excuse me. Franz Nielsen opens the score to make it one nothing Red Wings after Shabbat coughs up the puck. Dylan Larkin makes it two nothing after he makes a pass to t- t- Tyler Bertuzzi, who then drop passes back to Larkin. Arnizov gets Ottawa on the board to make it two one. Scott Sabron powers through to the net to tie the game at two. Arnizov scores his second of the night to make it three two Senators. And Sam Gagne deflects the puck home to tie the game at three. And Arnizov scores in the shootout to give Ottawa. The W. So I had to condense watch this game because, as I was saying at the beginning of this episode, I had a crazy busy work week. And this night, I didn't get home till late. So I didn't get a chance to watch this game. And from watching some of the stats, it looked like I missed a decent enough game because Artem Anizov, two goals on ten shots. Hands down, this is easy his best game as an Ottawa center. Well, to be fair... You are playing against the kid who eats glue. I know, we're playing against the Red Wings, but still, credit has to be given. When you get 
you get 10 shots in a game in the National Hockey League, regardless who you're playing, it's still impressive. True. You do have to keep it but I know. They're glue. Yeah, and I think what was amazing is I remember looking at my phone and seeing that we were down to nothing. And I was like, oh, fuck, we could lose this one. Tank on. That is true. Now, given that we were talking, you were talking about Marcus Hogberg getting the win in the last game, let's talk about him in this game. 25 saves, a .893 save percentage. Honestly, watching the condensed version, I can't really blame him on any of those goals. Yeah, which is kind of surprising for the fact you're playing against the Detroit Red Wings, or do we? Do I know who anyone on this team is other than Dylan Larkin? Uh, Tyler Pertuzzi, I know. Yeah. Uh, oh, Jonathan Bernier. The Sens made Bernier look good. But then again, I think Bernier's been probably one, sadly, the lone bright spot in this season. That's just sad. Yeah. And we didn't even get to see our boy Cody Golubov. Oh, I know. The heartbreak just continues, doesn't it? I know, I know. Well, one guy that actually eased a bit of the pain was Brady Tuchuk with seven shots. I really wish he could have scored in this one because if there's one team Brady Tuchuk has always done well against since he arrived in the NHL, it was the Detroit Red Wings. Well, I mean, the Detroit Red Wings have always been crap since he's been in the NHL. So again, you're beating up on the team that eats glue. That's not true. They don't just eat glue, Tim. They also mush up a bit of some crayon in there, too. Ooh, variety. This is a team that gives Justin Applicator a bunch of money. No, Ken Holland gave him a bunch of money. Stevie Wise thinking, oh, good God, what have I got myself into? Yeah. And then goes and complains about the way the team plays, even though he's garbage. But, uh, yeah, no, this is uh, just... The Senators got 40 shots. Not even that. They got 39. Yeah. They looked... And they're all, like, right up against the net, too. So it's just... Yeah, if Bernie wasn't good, this would have been a route for Ottawa. Yeah, that's true. No, and, like, if you're getting curb stopped by the 2019-2020 Senators, you've got problems. True. Now, we do have to keep in mind with this game that at the time of this recording, this is the last game Hogberg has played with the Sens because he was granted a leave of absence for the team to head back to Sweden for personal reasons. Oh, that's really sad, and I hope he doesn't kidnap any of his children. No, it's, that's Sweden, not Russia. Right. Yeah. Honestly, he's probably, I don't know, maybe got a problem with Ikea or something over there, or whatever... Uh, probably a family matter. Like, I still can't believe the Zaitsev thing. Holy shit. I know, and we never got any clarification on what exactly happened over there. It's Russia. We never will. That's true. So, Tim, I don't really have any more comments to make on this game if you just want to head off into the close for another evening. I guess the last thing I could say is we almost got a perfect tank night. Because... <coughs> Both L.A. and New Jersey got points, and I believe San Jose <laughs> lost as well. Oh, well, I'll tell you, Tim, we're going to get the perfect tank game 
this coming week. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, but we're gonna save that for when we go into the close, Tim. Which is right now. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. We can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter at Third Line Plugs or Twitter handle. Tim is at m 909 Badger. I'm at Great White Gibster, GR8, WYTE Gibster. If you want to shoot us an email to talk about the games, top of the hour discussion point, or you want to talk about Tank Bowl, Shoot us an email, thirdlightplugsuscats at gmail.com. So, Tim, we've got three games on the schedule for this week. We've got Tuesday night, we are in Pittsburgh to play the Penguins. Thursday, my birthday, we are back at home to return of Jean-Gabriel Pajot in the New York Islanders. And Saturday, prepare, Tim, for Tank Bowl! We are in San Jose to play the San Jose Sharks. That's a game. No matter who wins, we lose. What, what are you talking about, Tim? San Jose doesn't have their first. Yeah, but one of the teams that we hold first a first rounder for has to win. Yeah, but does it really matter? One of our first round picks is going to do good. True. Until next week, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jetsy. Go Sounds, guys. Woo!